Welcome to On The Continent, your one-stop shop for all things European football. I'm Dotton Adibayo. I'm Andy Brassel. And I'm Miguel Delaney. On today's show, the headline transfer in the window so far is a delight for Turkish fans. It's the best of times and the best of times in our tale of two Milans. And COVID strikes at the heart of Portuguese football. But let's begin by talking about Roma, Andy. Last week, we were talking about the team. We couldn't have imagined that we'd need to say, friends, Romans, countrymen, <laughs> lend me your ears. What has happened to them? Over the space of seven days, they've collapsed. I don't know about lend me your ears. Lend me a few more defenders, maybe, Dotton, because <laughs> uh, Nikki kind of trailed it last week when she said... Um, she had a little doubt in the back of her mind about Roma because of their results against the, the the top eight or nine teams in Serie A. And then they, well, I would say they turn up for the derby against Lazio on Friday night. They didn't really turn up. They were absolutely terrible. Lazio were very, very good on the night and um, they, they beat Roma soundly. And then a couple of days later, Roma play Spezia in the, the cup. They go 2-0 down. It's looking like a terrible week. Then they come back and make it 2-2 to take it into extra time. Then they get two players sent off in less than a minute in separate incidents, which is pretty amazing. And Paolo Fonseca, their coach, tries to bring on and actually succeeds in bringing on a sixth sub to to bring on because one of the goal, uh, players who was sent off was a goalkeeper, Paolo Lopez. So he, he brings on a substitute goalkeeper and his captain, uh, Lorenzo Pellegrini, is saying, haven't we made five already? And and so anyway, he goes ahead, he ignores Pellegrini, goes ahead and makes the sub, and he's like, well, it's something, he talked about it afterwards, Fonseca, and he said it's something for the, the authorities to, to sort out. But it's quite interesting because Fonseca is a terrific coach who occasionally has looked a little bit malleable under pressure when everything was falling apart for him at, at Porto when he was there. I remember being at a, a game that they played in the Europa League um, where they uh, drew 2-2 with Eintracht Frankfurt. They were 2-0 up in that and ended up getting pegged back 2-2. And after they played Eintracht Frankfurt, I reiterate, he said afterwards, <laughs> it's always very tough against Bayern Leverkusen. Bayern Leverkusen. So he, he got he got it wrong kind of twice. And that was the point where everyone thought, yeah, that maybe he's not long for this job. Uh, Miguel, how how can a team collapse in the way that Roma collapsed, do you think? Well, what's going on there? They look like they're... I mean, they, they should get relegated on this form, shouldn't they? Um, well, it's I mean, it's not something new. In, 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 it, this is actually something that's happened across European leagues right now in that uh, I don't know whether it's circumstances or, well, as well as Andy alluded to there, the specifics of how Fonseca approaches uh, or how he manages... But we are seeing a lot of teams going on these streaks of four. And I, I wonder does the kind of momentum related to the congestion of the calendar have something to do with it? Where, especially when games are thicker and faster. Now I know Italy had a bit more of a break, but uh, there's, there's just almost less time for teams to take a, a step back, especially for a coach in that sense, like Fonseca. 
Okay, let's talk about the one transfer of the January transfer window that seems to have got everybody interested. It's kicked some energy into this transfer window, which has been so slow so far, which is the departure. You could argue the eventual or finally the departure of Mesut Ozil uh, from from the Emirates, uh, forgot for a moment that it's not called Highbury anymore. That's what you get for being a North Londoner. Uh, Miguel, you wrote an amazing piece, I've got to say, in The Independent about uh, uh, what will be seen as Ozil's legacy at Arsenal, didn't you? Um, what what went wrong there? Um, well, where, where, where do you start? Uh, I think the first thing that should be said, because there's been a lot of commentary on this, uh, it started to go wrong well before that tweet, uh, which is just over a year ago now, about China's treatment of uh, the Uyghur Muslims. Um, you know, and so, some of this is obviously connected now to his, or, or some, sorry, some of the strands of this are connected now to his move to Turkey and how he might be perceived there. Because as laudable as Ozil's approach was, I think Arsenal's kind of lily-livered um response at the time where they basically just distanced themselves from the tweet uh it it, it, it did leave a bit of a bad taste and they did consider fining him but that's ultimately not the reason he has been ousted from Ozil from Arteta's squad Uh, Arteta took a decision much later based on what he perceived as Ozil's conduct and his commitment uh secondly I suppose there's a wider argument about well I mean as laudable as uh Ozil's statement was at the time especially in you know when he was one of the few actually speaking out about it it's somewhat undercut when he has such a relationship with Erdogan uh, and of course that's going to be an undercurrent to all to all this and his move to Fenerbahce uh, but I mean in a broader sense as to why it went wrong at Arsenal it's basically just the case of a, a usually talented player who wasn't applying that talent to uh, the same degree for various reasons uh, among them, I think there's a lot of talk about how he's just lost his spark, his inspiration. That goes, that, that's not just from the last few years. That goes back to 2014 when he, um, I mean, basically he had such a, he, he, Mourinho put him into almost such a kind of tactical straitjacket at Real Madrid. He left Madrid. Then a year later, after a, a year of freedom at Arsenal almost, he wins the World Cup, which is what he always wanted, the ultimate accolade. And there's always been that sense that he hasn't been the same, that he, he's never really applied his talent to the, to, to, to the fullest degree and almost kind of just seen football as a way to express himself. Now, I mean, of course, that's led to, some, to many great moments where maybe he hasn't led to the great player uh, that Ozil should have been. Yeah, Andy, look, first of all, let's clarify something. The reason why uh, I say Ozil, whilst Miguel says Ozil, is because I'm an African Viking from Sweden and <laughs> o, o with two dots above it is er for us. So I, I don't know if you can clarify which the pronunciation is, but anyway, it continues being Mesut Ozil for me. But when Arsenal got him from... Yeah, well, Madrid, I'm sure that's pretty correct. <laughs> well, I don't know. But when Arsenal got him from Real Madrid, they got a proper player, a world-class player there. Um, he hadn't cut off his hair. Okay, fair enough. But he's not Samson, is he? What went wrong? Because this was Arsene Wenger deciding to break the bank. 42 million quid, I think he cost Arsenal at that time. 
which seemed an enormous amount compared to all the other players that Arsenal had. What went wrong? And do we blame the club or do we blame the player in this case? You know what? I, I think, first off, we don't want to forget the good moments, as, as Miguel said, that uh, Ozil gave Arsenal. And I, I think it's something that we're seeing more and more in modern European football. Um, the desire, particularly from clubs, to trash a player's legacy when they're trying to get rid of them because they have to do everything they can to get rid of players who are earning so highly and very difficult to get off the wage bill. Now, of course, Ozil, in a way, represents a kind of golden era for for Real Madrid, Um, not just because he was very good there, despite the fact that um, there's this cliche that kind of clings to him that um, he, he just did some fancy assists against lower-rated teams, um, went clubbing and got taken off after 65 minutes by Mourinho every week. Uh, There's more to it than that. And his his numbers at Real Madrid are absolutely fantastic. And I I think you you look at the respect he had from from their senior players. I I mean, it's it's, it's something that that um, really really speaks for him. But um, I think it's interesting that uh, Ozil, who in ways I think adapted to England better than a lot of people thought he would. I mean, he adapted better than I thought he would because, again, you look at the amount of running he was eventually able to do when he was in the middle of his Arsenal spell. The way he adapted physically to the Premier League is more than a lot of people gave him credit for. And, um, uh, you know, I think you look at, the, say, the Champions League game against Bayern Munich where um, they, they beat them at, at the Emirates and he burst into the penalty box in injury time to to score the second goal. That goes completely against the cliche of Ozil. But just as he was a symbolic signing for Arsenal, and actually going back a little bit, talking about him being part of a golden period for for. Real Madrid, I really meant a golden period of being able to sell fringe players for an absolute fortune, which is something that they would have loved so much to do with Gareth Bale and Isco in in, in the modern era. But he was a symbolic signing of Arsenal uh, for Arsenal, um, a real sign of hope. And he's the same for Fenerbahce in a different way. Now, obviously, people will um, believe that there's a political angle to that and, and and there is whichever way you look at it because um lucas podolsky for example was talking about it in an interview with um built in, in the last day or two and he was saying well presidents sign club at star star players not because of, not for the good of the team but just to keep the fans happy and i think the the level of mania the level of excitement that has accompanied Ozil signing for for Fenerbahce, it supersedes any discussion of how he might fit in tactically to a team that's doing very well this season under a very good coach in in, in Errol Balut. But, um, of course, the other angle, as Miguel said, is Urian. And that will be very interesting to see how this plays out, depending on how well Ozil does or otherwise, because his close relationship with Erdian does make him to a certain degree his footballer, doesn't he? And if you go back to the Gezi Park protests, so we're going back, what, six, seven years now, it was interesting to see there the union between Galatasaray, Bajiktas, and Fenerbahce supporters 
on what they saw as a cracking down on civil liberties. So it's very rare that you get supporters of any football team in any country really coming together to put aside tribal loyalties. And again, Ozil is something that kind of papers over all that because he's such a megastar. People are so delighted to have him in Turkey and Fenerbahce fans are, are delighted to have him. But I'm, I'm wondering if that holds. One thing I'm also intrigued in with this, Andy, is um, how, and this is, it's a thorny subject, or a complicated subject, should I say, that we've touched on uh, on the pod in the past, particularly in relation to, say, um, players from the Nigerian diaspora or the Irish diaspora declaring for, or which country to declare for. But how mm. is Ozil seen in Turkey in terms of, nationality or when he embraced his when, sorry I should say when he publicly embraced his Turkish nationality uh, is it something he's spoken of more recently uh, or how has that gotten down uh, does he does he see himself as more Turkish Turkish than German now or is it has there ever been any sort of kind of spectrum or question about that well he's he's someone who's always embraced both sides of his character but I think you're right Miguel it's definitely changed since the fallout of the 2018 World Cup, where he has felt a bit cast aside by Germany. And, you know, I know a lot of people and a lot of Arsenal fans will make judgments on him sitting on a big contract and not really playing over recent months. But I think it's worth delving into a little bit and worth acknowledging at least how um, hurt Ozil has been by the lack of support that he had um, after the criticism. And he felt the quite racially motivated criticism in some cases that he received after the, the 2018 World Cup. And, you know, Jerome Boateng was one of the only senior players, really, who who stood up for him. So I think it's quite possible that beneath that grinning sort of anodyne exterior on social media, that Ozil has been very, very hurt by what has happened over the last two years. And the situation, as we mentioned on the Ramble a couple of days ago, where basically the club much as with Gareth Bale and Real Madrid the club signed him to an extended contract to sort of I I guess give off a a feeling of stability and then as soon as they'd signed the contract realized that they'd made a mistake and you know he is he has paid the bill for a lot of that I suppose. What's interesting with Ozil as well I suppose and and very relevant to as some of these teams are discussing is the the entourage around them and like having Mm. I suppose been researching Ozil for the last few days and kind of delving into topics around this, a, a few people said to me that it's something that's actually been not played up enough, just how just how wrapped up in his entourage he is. And I suppose, I mean, how influenced by his entourage he is. And a, lot, a lot of people talk about how, in terms of a tone, it's his agent, Erkut Sogut, who interestingly is a, um, is almost, is a protege Basically, of uh, of Yogi Lowe's agent, Aaron Aslan. We, I mean, so it's wider work. Mm. Before 2018, 2018, there was a really good relationship between Ozil and Love um, that has obviously since dissipated uh, since that whole incident and, and the fallout of that World Cup. But uh, one of the things people told me, I mean, just as regards to entourage in general, someone who used to work at Arsenal, some quite influential, who had to deal with the senior players, was basically used to be tearing their hair out. And having to deal with Ozil's entourage, and apparently with Germany as well, there had been attempts from the German Federation behind the scenes to try and solve this issue. But Ozil's camp with uh, Sogut or Eckert setting 
a particularly aggressive tone, just shut it down all the time. Uh, and Ozil as well, he said to I me, mean, from someone who has worked directly with him, basically said to me that Ozil is, uh, he can be a very different character, actually, or he's almost, a, he cha- his behavior changes a little bit when uh, Sogut comes into the room and he's seen as kind of a bit more reserved. Uh, and it, it, this was an entourage as well. Interesting enough, it, it used to feature uh, Gundogan's brother Ilhan and Shkodran Mustafi's father pushed him. That, that's obviously changed now. And the kind of the circle around Ozil is um, it, it's pretty much just his cousin, his brother, and uh, and Sogut now. Yeah, and we have to say, whatever happens, this is a huge gamble fellas for 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 Fenerbahce because of course there's a lot of PR goodwill to be to be made as as, as we've we've already discussed and you know this is as big as signings get for the for the Turkish Super League because of his name because of his status because of his his honors because of as um Podolski was still trying to infer um in, in, in this interview that I was talking about before he's still young enough to to, to make a difference, although he hasn't played at the top of his game and he hasn't played regularly for for long enough, that I, th- I think we've we've got to ask questions until he mm. he prove, uh, proves otherwise. Um, but the fact is, even with an absolutely massive wage cut, Fenerbahce are betting the farm on him. I mean, we're going to find out yeah. the full details once he's gone through his five days of quarantine having arrived in Turkey and signed to the contract because they, as I said on the ramble the other day, again, that they have to release to the Turkish stock exchange, the breakdown of the contract. So um, it will be heavily bonus based on appearances, goals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Much as big stars of the past have, have been um, Drogba, Falcao, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But either way, they're, they're betting a fortune on him. And the talk is that it's going to be a three and a half year contract, which I mean, the back end of that is is going to look sticky either either way. I yeah. think, um, and th- there is no option with the situation that he's gone into, apart from Fenerbahce winning the league and him taking them back into the Champions League. Which again, I would imagine there will be bonuses, rather substantial bonuses for. Just just on that, yeah. he's actually he's, he's probably the um, he's probably the bigger or at least the biggest signing closest to his prime. That the Turkish league has ever made. Yeah, I, I, th- I think you could say that. Um, and, and so, if he does prove that he's still got, I guess, even like 70-80% of, of his highest output, then it's going to be something really special. And for them to go on from that, it's not just about winning the Turkish league, for them to go on and make an impact in Europe, which... Turkish clubs have not done for a, a good couple of years now. And last couple of times that Galatasaray have been in the Champions League, they've they've been embarrassed. Um, Fenerbahce haven't been in it for a really long time now. That really is what will make, I think, Ozil's spell at Fenerbahce fly. Isn't it interesting? We started off this conversation with 1-0 to Ozil, then it was 1-0, then it went 2-1 to Ozil, and now it's 3-0 to Ozil. Well done. Well done, Miguel. Just on a final <laughs> note, just on a final note, though, an important one, uh, something that Andy said a moment or two ago, Ozil's now 32 years old. Um, in your piece, Miguel, you wrote that he had these extraordinary silky skills where he would, um, well, turn a, a very simple pass into a screwball pass. 
and fans loved it. And no doubt Fenerbahce fans will love, and Turkish football fans in general will love him being there. Does he still have those skills though? Does he still have the skills that he had five five or six seasons ago at Arsenal, which made him, for example, the 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 top assist player in the league, breaking all records? Oh yeah, I mean, like, I that's something that doesn't go. Just his touch, his delivery, uh, and because because the question at Arsenal has been about that over the last few years under Emery and Arteta, it's been about pressing and his energy levels and whether he's willing to commit to the same degree. Uh, and I think that's probably it's been one of the great frustrations with Rose Lazen. And maybe and the wonder is whether this will continue at um, at Fenerbahce, where we see great moments, but we don't necessarily see great performances or great great moments of character. I mean, it was one of the things that really stood out for me when I was going to come back through uh, uh, Ozil's career at uh, at Arsenal. It was he just doesn't really have those signature displays that you would associate with their great players, like like Burkamp, who he's so compared to. It's a, it's a kind of a series of nice moments rather than anything truly defining. Uh, and, I mean, that is quite disappointing, I think. And that, and that does leave open, I suppose, a bit of a question now as he as he goes towards Fenerbahce. And you expect him to lift him onto another level, as Andy said there, exactly where Arsenal were in 2013. <laughs> Let's talk about one city and two Milans, as it were, facing off against each other, both doing well in Serie A. Will it be Inter or will it be AC for your money, Andy? You know what? It's it's really hard to say. And the last week or so, I think, has made it even harder because I, I think I talked on here before about the feeling of impending doom that a lot of neutrals and non-Juventus fans I know had um, after the Milan-Juventus game right at the top of the year where uh, Juventus went to San Siro and and won 3-1. And they thought that that might be the start of the typical Juventus march to the the title. But things that have happened since then have really kind of subverted the cliches about Serie A. Firstly, that Juventus haven't got it right. Secondly, the Inter have and have dealt with things very calmly. And I think if you look at the game at the weekend where Inter beat Juve 2-0, it's not just huge winning the Derby d'Italia in any situation, but for the two teams to be near equals, Inter to play them off the park, to keep a clean sheet, which they almost never do this season, and for Antonio Conte to look quite chilled on the touchline, those are all really unusual things, quite apart from the fact that Juventus were absolutely awful in it, really, really terrible, were barely even second best. I think the other strand to the title picture is the fact that Milan, and I kind of said it at the time when we were talking about that game that they lost against Juventus, they were depleted by injury, they were depleted by COVID, and they still played that game, not like underdogs, but like a team that thought they could win it. And that gave to me the hope that they could come back and regenerate their title push. They've done it since then. They've really done it. And for them to, with Inter breathing down their necks, to still be three points clear, Milan are doing an absolutely fantastic job. And of course now, 
they've got the return of Zlatan Ibrahimovic, who came back to start his first game since his injury in mid-November against Napoli, um, when he played against Cagliari on on Monday night, scored within the first 10 minutes, won a penalty, scored the penalty, then scored the second goal in, in the second half. And now you add to that mix, I think they're almost sort of future-proofing themselves against something happening to Ibrahimovic again. They've picked up Mario Mandzukic for nothing. Now, clearly, that again, much as with the Ozil thing, there'll be some wages on the table. I don't think there's any doubt about that. Um, but I, I think it will be affordable for Milan. And also, a player such as Mandzukic, who's not, th- not quite on the same level media-wise as Ibrahimovic, but he's someone who's a winner, who's played for loads of the best clubs in in Europe, who's scored goals in Italy, Germany, Spain, who's been a winner in all of those places. And someone who has scored for two different teams in two different Champions League finals, who's tactically adaptable. You think of him in that, what, 2017 um, Juventus side, when it, um, Allegri put him on the, the left-hand side and he would have looked like the least likely candidate to play on the left of attack because he's a proper strapping number nine. He has picked up the number nine shirt signing for, for Milan. Th- th- he's someone who can who can do a great job and he's such an intelligent player as well as a, a strong one. So that's an absolutely brilliant pickup as far as January signings go. And I think, you know, there's there's a question over them because... They've this set of players, it's a young team, they've never been in this position before. But there's always a question over Inter because they always find quite creative ways to shoot themselves in the foot. So how they follow up this Juventus game, this Juventus win will be quite interesting. We just I mean, just to pick up on Manzukic and Ibrahimovic, someone, I suppose Manzukic has actually done something. Well, he's done a few things that Ibrahimovic hasn't and has greatly wanted to, which is not just play and score in a Champions League final, but win it. Uh, and yeah. in, in in some ways, his, uh, his his legacy is almost superior. But I'm I'm, I'm, I'm allowing some of my uh, my aggravation at some of the Ibrahimovic persona to come in there because. <laughs> but, but, but I think what but I, I think that is almost relevant because what Ibrahimovic personifies almost adds a slightly different element to I think one of the fascinating elements of this Serie A title race, which is the very different profiles of the three the three main squads. I'm just going to say three because even though. Juventus are obviously so distant now. It just feels like it, it, it would still be dangerous to just completely dismiss them. But I suppose, I mean, what Juventus are now, and, and the reason they're in this position now is it's end of empire stuff with that, not not for the club as a whole, but for this specific team, with that directly related to the fact that they couldn't offload um, players they usually would because of how constrained the market has been. Then you've got this Milan, as you say, other than Ibrahimovic and now Mandzukic. It's a very young team where they've almost tried to echo some of, some of these more creative clubs around Europe and tried to game the system and the market. Then you have Inter, I suppose, who are almost a classically a classically spending team in that regard. But it's put together what is, when you stand back, what is a really strange squad, I think, in that a lot of it is almost a kind of a Premier League 2014-16 tribute act. <laughs> uh, but of course, the, the, the great differential with Inter is they've got the manager among the three who's been there and done it. And as even as someone said to me two weeks ago about, about this title race, well, Inter are on a run. And you know what happens when Conte's on a run. Um, and I mean, I, I, and in that, like, just to pick up on something that Andy said there, uh, there's, there's actually an interesting tension there between 
Inter's recent history, and I suppose a history that precedes their kind of their 04 to 2010 glory, where they'd find a way to mess up against Conte, who is in the modern game, you know, as close to a definition as a winner in, in the league as you can get. And that's it when you talk about the league, I think, Miguel. I think them being out of Europe is the best possible year to do it, even though they wouldn't have picked the fashion to go out of the Champions League and go out of Europe altogether that they they did. I think what's so interesting about these two teams facing off, these two squads facing off against each other, is that um, sense of experience on, on either side. I mean, much as I'd love to focus on Ashley Young, and I'm really enjoying his Italian tweets at the at the moment, ancora tre punti, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I, I think the, the, the fact that Conte has bet so heavily on padding out his squad with experienced players, like, you know, Young has absolutely earned his place. He's been brilliant ever since he's arrived at Inter. But I think when you look at Arturo Vidal, when you look at um, Kolodov, it is, it's something that's not really sustainable beyond this year because obviously they'll be on absolutely humongous wages. Um, there's talk, uh, quite strong talk of um, Inter being sold at the moment or at least um, having a, a, a new major investor. So we'll, we'll see how that pans out. But the Vidal thing's fascinating because talking of Inter shooting themselves in the foot at the start of the season, and particularly you think back to that um, Champions League uh, game against Barcelona where he completely lost it at the referee you know the experienced players are meant to see them through those moments and Ibrahimovic whatever you think of his off pitch persona has done that for Milan in an exemplary fashion since he's been back there as well as scoring all the goals which are almost a bonus but Vidal was constantly letting into down and you know you had the impression at the turn of the year that Conte was kind of looking at him when he was on the pitch thinking, what more can I do with this guy? He keeps doing stupid stuff. And then even at the beginning of the Juventus game, he sort of drops another enormous bollock, which we'll come to in a minute. He ends up scoring the goal. The first goal he scored in Serie A uh, since he's... uh, uh, since he left Juventus in 2015. A vital goal because it put them in front. It was a lead they never relinquished. Didn't really celebrate it that extravagantly because he's cl- so closely associated with Inter. But going back to that faux pas at the beginning, when he's greeting Giorgio Chiellini, he goes to give Chiellini a kiss on the cheek. And because Chiellini is quite a bit taller than him, he ends up accidentally kissing the Juventus badge on his tracksuit top. <laughs> and obviously, all the Inter fans go, absolutely apeshit on social media. So they're like, this th- this guy better not better not let us down now. You know, he's, he's still a Juventus player. And, you know, Italy is quite, you know, football fans love a conspiracy there. Uh, but so it was quite an opportune moment for Vidal to, to score that goal, even though some of them still hold the Chiellini thing against him. Yeah, you see, it's never good to drop a huge bollock on the pitch, is it? Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> I love the way you described it. And obviously, the other... Thank you. The, the, you're welcome. But the other metaphor that you used was uh, shooting yourself in the foot, which is never a good thing in football. After all, you know, uh, your foot is delicate. <laughs> and, and, but listening to you both talk about the two Milans, despite the fact that you seem to be saying that Inter has the stronger or more durable squad for this season, at least. I'm still 
I'm still wondering whether it's AC Milan. It sounds like AC Milan are more likely uh, to uh, win Serie A than Inter Milan, not least because of some of the uh, critiques that you've made about Inter's um, short-termism, perhaps. Miguel, what do you reckon? Well, I'd go Inter, I'd say. I, I think Inter will actually end up winning it relatively comfortably. I, I, that, that, that's, that's a clip that could be played in four months' time and sound very stupid. But I just, <laughs> uh, I, just, just, just because of the profile of squad, uh, I, I think for this season, I, like I mean, I'd have concerns for Inter, as Andy's touched upon there, after this season. But I think for this season, and this can happen especially with these teams, I mean, it actually kind of happened for Inter in 2009-10. That was a very old squad, really, when you look at it now. But obviously, they just hit such a right note, or Mourinho had them hit such a right note for, for that season. And it could, it could be similar this campaign. And just because Milan are that bit younger, there's that bit of experience, a bit less experience. I I think I don't think they'll sustain it. Um, and I think Inter just will have that kind of baseline competitiveness that will take them by maybe five to eight points. And and uh, Andy, you, you've also got to make a statement so that we can replay it back to you in four months' time. Well, this uh, is the this is the history of uh, journalists making predictions, really, isn't it? <laughs> uh, to to, to uh, sort of semi quote Conte himself. I think, just as in uh, NBA, they say clips going to clip. I would say Inter going to Inter. They'll they'll find a way. I don't know. After hearing Miguel, though, I'm a little bit concerned that maybe I've been brainwashed by the cult of Ibrahimovic. He has been very persuasive this season, though. Let's talk about another subject that can will no doubt have its ramifications beyond the Portuguese league, which has been hit very, very hard by COVID, Andy. Uh, yeah, and um, it's, it's been a big deal this week, Dotton, because um, this is the week of the Tassa de Liga, the League Cup, and it's played in a Final Four format. So you have semi-finals on Tuesday and Wednesday and the final on, on Saturday. <clears throat> and um, all the big three or four, if you include Braga, are in, involved because you had the first um, semi-final between uh, Sporting and, and Porto, then the second final between uh, Benfica and Braga. And what really began all of this is the fact that Benfica have um, 19 cases of COVID in their squad, including staff, including seven players, including Jan Vertonghen, uh, Luca Valschmidt, uh, Nicholas Otamendi. And uh, they had asked for their games to be postponed for the next next two weeks, not unreasonably. They were talked into playing uh, the Tassa de Liga semi on, on, on Wednesday. And at the time of recording, they pledged to do that. But they had a few more cases since the initial ask. So whether it actually will go ahead, um, you guys will know by the time you're, you're listening to this, but um, we'll wait and see. Um, but there was already a lot of fuss around the first semi, which was a very dramatic semi. Uh, Porto led uh, late on and then uh, two very, very late goals from uh, Sporting by Jovan Cabral um, saw them through to the, the, the final. And, you know, it's 
the history of Porto in this competition, uh, that they always lose the stoppage time goals uh, when, when they look like they're in a position to, to, to win it. But it was a huge row because Porto, who'd been affected by COVID, threatened to not play because there were uh, two sporting players, um, Nuno Mendes and uh, Andres Borar, the striker, who um, returned positives, which were then um, revealed to be false positives. They said, according to guidelines, they they shouldn't be in the squad and refuse to play if, if they were. Um, sporting put out a statement saying, the statement actually said the official club statement actually said if they refuse to play all the better for us because we'll get in the final anyway which i found was pretty extraordinary in the circumstances um the uh portuguese health authorities removed mensch and uh sporar from the squad so they didn't play and after the game was won um by sporting their um President Federico Verandes gave a really pugnacious press conference um, where he said, "Well, look, I'm a I'm a doctor, and and, and these two guys don't don't have COVID. Um, we're unhappy with the way they've been treated, and now, if you'll excuse me, I'm um, off to treat people who are genuinely ill." And you, you know, I don't think anything really surprises you when it comes to the the big three in Portugal um, because, you know, nothing is too petty to argue over. And um, of course, you know, game of the week last weekend was um, the classical between Porto and Benfica, which ended in a 1-1 draw, included a lot of violence, anger and recrimination as as, as you would expect. But I, I don't know, may, maybe I'm ridiculously naive, but I keep thinking at some point, Miguel, and we can think of this, um, in terms of the Euros as well and how that might eventually be planned out, that football will come together and, you know, warring factions will come together and say, there is a greater good. Let's work together. <laughs> but have, have we reached that point yet? Because it doesn't feel like that to me. No, there was a very brief uh, flash of that at the very start of the pandemic, uh, basically when FIFA agreed to move their their Club World Cup that was going to be in China this year. Uh, but beyond that, not really. In fact, a theme of this whole crisis-influenced football world, which is, what, almost 10 months old now, has been everyone lobbying and jostling for position. Obviously, huge problems and headaches about how you deal with the the calendar. Uh, but everyone basically arguing that, well, my, na- my game needs to go through for these, uh, for these reasons that are usually contractual and related to broadcast. And it's created this huge uh, bottleneck right across Europe and basically no space anyway. That is a theme right across. And it does point to one of the issues in football where the lack of almost independent government, I mean, but this is more related to individual countries, but also in a, on a wider kind of continental level, when you have federations like UEFA and FIFA who, well, I mean, with UEFA, a lot of what they do, of course, is very good, but ultimately... One of they still they don't they don't just kind of govern the game in that sense. They also actually run a competition that is itself almost in competition with other tournaments. Uh, so yeah. and creates that does create issues. And one of the, one of the reasons the FIFA wanted that Club World Cup in the first place is because they saw the amount of money that the Champions League was making and how it was how it had basically superseded the World Cup and thought we want a bit of that. 
Uh, and so it all feeds into this kind of mess. And a part of that as well, of course, now is just on the horizon, the European Championships. And from what, I mean, again, it would solve so many problems, basically, if there was some sort of flexibility, flexibility where the European Championships or when it could be held. But this time, from everything you hear, that's just non-negotiable. UEFA already feel they did the clubs a huge favour by moving it last year. Um, even though I suppose Manny would have seen that as inevitable, uh, they would say it's not, and it's still it still required very good goodwill from UEFA. So this time the tournament goes ahead as and when, and having that on the horizon in whatever form it's going to take, uh, does create a problem for the rest of the game now. But then the rest of the game has also created its own problems because they just they seem to insist on having a normal season in totally abnormal times. So just as I speak, there's been an update from UEFA. Uh, this indicates that they're not going to move the date, um, which is still expected to be early June to early July. But they well, they may well change the format because they've issued an update to people who've bought tickets saying that if, if a match is moved to a venue which is more than 50 kilometers away from the original venue, ticket buyers wouldn't be entitled to a full refund of the ticket price if they cannot or do not wish to attend. And I think there has been increasing uh, talk that it could be moved to either one country or just a smaller collection of countries. And in fact, one of the solutions I've heard put forward is that it, is that it could be a British Isles tournament. Obviously, uh, Dublin, Scotland, sorry, Dublin, Glasgow, and London are already set to host games, so that could almost preserve the spirit of the competition. And and, and of course, allied to that, of course, I mean, central to so much of the discussion is the success of the vaccine program in various countries. But even there, because of England's early numbers or the UK's early numbers, it, it could be ahead of a lot of a lot of Europe there. And that news is an indication that the situation, the goalposts, as you like, uh, if you like, are shifting as we speak with regards to the European Championships uh, all the time, I imagine, and responding to, you know, the latest news with regards to COVID. But I would have thought, Andy, that they'd be keeping an eye. I know, I know it's a different discipline, but nevertheless, keeping an eye on what's going on in the Australian Open, uh, which, as we know, has been hugely affected by COVID. And when when players' um, regimes are disrupted, let alone the fact that, you know, if, if your team, your club has been devastated by um, a lot of COVID infections, when, when players' regimes are infected so seriously by the pandemic, you have less of a tournament. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point, Dotton. And I, I think so much of football's post-COVID planning, and it is an enormous challenge, has been um, what we can fit in rather than what we should be doing. Um, I, I think that's that's a massive issue. And um, I, I don't know if, if, if you were the, the champion of a, a tournament like the Euros, for example, which is one of UEFA's pinnacles i think it's, it's it's difficult knowing that you're going into a tournament where as you say dotton the, the the standard is going to be really subpar i mean we've seen gross inconsistency and um like really unpredictable form in league competitions and then we get to the end of that and we're going to have no break in a, a, a euros I, I think that is quite a tough sell for what is normally quite a prestigious tournament. Well, you just on that, I mean, in terms of the, the calendar challenges, and, and I think, yeah, it should be accepted that this is an unprecedented situation with, with, with challenges that are, that are hugely difficult. 
But it still feels that. I mean, it doesn't help that they were making some of these decisions last summer when the crisis wasn't as bad as at other stages of the year like now. Yeah. But it still feels like football regularly, they plan for the best case scenario rather than the worst case scenario. Um, but that's football um, all over, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but, 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 but just as well in terms of the quality, I mean, it feels like we could have what happened with the 2002 World Cup, but multiplied by several factors. Do you remember with 2002, because of the rainy season in Korea and Japan, the tournament actually started much earlier. So it started, I think it was either the 31st of May or 1st of June. And the Champions League final had only been kind of two weeks and a bit beforehand. So loads of kind of, basically most of the players at top European clubs went to that tournament exhausted, really fatigued. And then what, what happened to the tournament itself? There was loads of upsets. You know, Argentina went out in the first round, Italy went out in the second round, despite at the time many thinking they had some of their possibly best squads of generations. Um, and I think we could well see similar this time. Uh, not, not so much, I mean, again, the break between the two isn't great, but more so, I suppose, it's the accumulated fatigue from so much football. And it could be, well, a mixture of 2002 and 2016. Uh, I, I, I do fear. A, quite a low-quality tournament. Now, sometimes low-quality ends up throwing up usually entertaining games. Yeah, that's that's true. I, I, I do think, though, um, this is a time at which, especially with the calendar being so pressed, um, and especially with um, clubs jostling for position and seeing what they can get out of reformatting of, of various leagues and you know, maybe taking advantage of the current financial state of flux to a, a, a certain degree as well. I think the very existence of international football is going to be under more pressure than ever. It already feels to me like it's under more pressure than ever. So it's the worst possible time to have a terrible tournament that's several rungs below what we would expect of elite football and really puts, I guess, really sort of polarises the positions of international football and club football and gets club football and especially elite club football in a position where it says no we're not gonna, we're not going to give anything to to the organizers of international football including the the football associations yeah can somebody please archive that prediction from andy because i've got a niggling feeling that we're gonna have to replay it in three or four months time when when covid or the vaccine becomes the Mesut Ozil, or if you prefer, the Dennis Bergkamp, the the playmaker. (laughs) It's time for you both to suggest a game that we can relish and enjoy for this weekend. Uh, A game of the week. Andy, do you have one? Yeah, I don't know about relish and enjoy. Relish, maybe, not enjoy. Um, I'm looking forward to the derby between Saint-Étienne and Lyon on Sunday night in France. A strange week last week where you had uh, Lyon starting the weekend on top of the table, um, suffering a a surprise home defeat to Metz and ending up third. Um, But it still hopefully will remain a a really good title race. Now, we're talking about Portugal and its challenges with COVID. Saint-Étienne have got a lot of challenges with COVID at the moment. They asked for their game against Strasbourg to be postponed last week. It was a no. Um, they've, they were asked for this game against Lyon to be postponed. It was a no. Now, Claude Puel is the ultimate scrapper. He was as a footballer and he is as a coach as well. So I wouldn't be surprised if despite his 
squad being quite depleted, they were to make it very difficult for Leon. But it's always keenly contested, and it'll be really interesting. And Miguel, uh, I was going to go with I'm going to go with Spain again because uh, I'm very fascinated with this season, not just because of my heritage. Uh, I was thinking Alaves Madrid. Uh, just because, because I mean, cause Madrid at the moment are one of the most intriguing teams, not one of the not one of the best teams in Europe. But just what's going on there? They can cut between so many complications. But beyond that, because I suppose maybe the uh, story of success could be better than the story of failure. We hope whether Atletico can persevere. So I'm going to go for Atletico Valencia. I mean, also there's a strange thing with Atletico now. Even even though Simeone should really have banished all these. I mean, it's a little like what uh, Andy was talking earlier with Inter. E- even though Simeone should have banished all these psychological neuroses, at least around the league, if not the Champions League, who winning in, 20- in 2014. So, so many of those have returned in the, in the season since. And even though they're, they're in such a position of comfort now, the wonder is whether they can actually... I think that's what's quite fascinating about this team now, where they can actually really press home and put the hammer down. And you would imagine a classic Real Madrid or classic Barcelona team would can can Simeone get that response out of Atletico? I think that's that's why certainly their games over the next month or so are going to be quite fascinating. Are you sure you're not going to go for Cork City playing this weekend uh, because of your heritage? I mean, that's the other end of Ireland. We're dubs. Dotton, we're gonna look at we're gonna look at Sunderland because of our heritage. <laughs> I get it. I get it. I'll keep my own counsel next time. <laughs> This was a Stakhanov production and part of the Acast Creator Network.